Uh, it's Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. All right. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to be like nonsense to them. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, if you'd be uh, picking up a Bible, um, which you should find uh, close to you, or turn to your Bible app, uh, although Bible, physical Bible might be better because I'll be referring a little bit uh, to other things. Uh, let's pray, shall we, this Easter day as we celebrate the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, that he himself would be our teacher. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are here amongst us, that you are alive, that you reign in heaven and on earth, that all things are under your power. So Lord Jesus, please would you help me in my weakness and sinfulness to say things that are helpful for us all, me included. Lord Jesus, would you show us your reality and your love that we might know you. Amen. Well, we're all affected by the secular culture that we live in, aren't we? The belief that there is no God and that when we die, that's it, for decades now has been growing in the West. We're told by the intellectual leaders of the West that it is simply irrational to believe in a dead person rising, bodily, physically. But we're also affected by the faith that has dominated the West for over the last 1,500 years. And I guess all of us will be feeling this tension at some level. Our Christian past in terms of our culture and yet the new atheism that has dominated our culture and of course both cannot be right which is right and, and whether we've been Christians for years or are struggling with faith in Christ or investigating the claims of Christ for the first time it's worth being aware of this atmosphere in which we live isn't it it's worth being aware of this secular mindset which seeps into us um, a few of us are going through a book at the moment um, 
called Making Sense of God by Timothy Keller. Uh, he's a, a, a Christian leader in New York, has planted many churches, and uh, he meets up with uh, atheists on a regular basis uh, to understand the perspective. And he speaks of one of the, the main reasons why people disbelieve, something he calls exclusive rationality. He describes it as this, the belief that science is the only arbiter of what is real and factual, and that we should not believe anything unless we can prove it decisively using empirical observation. Well, obviously, we looked at that a little bit in a little bit more detail at the last questions with a pint. But what the problem is, Keller says, is that once you believe this, and it is a belief, there's certain other things you can't believe, like when one's own personhood, like in reason itself. Far from being free from belief, one ends up believing in something that cannot establish its own authority. You can't, by reason, scientific, empirical evidence, demonstrate rational thought. Neither can you believe in these other things. You can't believe in morality, because that can't be established by scientific, rational thought, as, as Nietzsche made clear. Only faith can give the answer that Einstein gave, which is that I want to think God's thoughts after him, or Schrodinger, how could science contain the most sublime idea that presents itself to the human mind? Uh, why am I starting here? I'm starting here because unless we're self-consciously aware of the thinking that affects our minds, as we come to this passage in the Bible, we will just have been thinking, it's a fairy tale. It's just made up. You can't establish this by scientific empirical reason, so it can't be true. Have we been affected by that? Now, I can't uh, give all the arguments as to why exclusive rationality is false and deceitful, uh, but there's books that can help you with that. Uh, there's a book on the table that you can take away, written by Rebecca McLaughlin, which is uh, looking a little bit at that. If we follow exclusive rationality, we end up in nihilism, the belief that there is no meaning to life, that there's meaninglessness, that there's no good, no evil, no love, no, no beauty, no difference between a conscious human and the stones that we were collecting earlier. Uh, and people say, well, I, I, don't, I don't believe those things. I don't believe that there's no such thing as morality. Well, that's because of our Christian past, our religious past. If we continue down the, the, the track of atheism to its logical conclusion, if we're to be self-consistent, that's where we'll end up, and that's what Keller is arguing. Now, that was just a, a, by way of clearing away some of the impediments that we might have, or the things that we've been exposed to, which blind us to the truth of what we just had read, or, or dent our joy in it. See, if we come to this thinking this is just a fairy tale, it's some primitive explanation of something they couldn't explain, it's a fusion of Jewish and Greek religion, then we're not going to take it that seriously, are we? By contrast, billions of people today recognize that the reality of the resurrection is an objective historical fact. 
Irrespective of cultural background or intellectual commitments or upbringing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for anyone in the world, whatever culture, whatever identity, including you and me. So let's just pray again that as we come to this passage, we wouldn't be blinded by our presuppositions, but we would look to the truth of what God is saying in this passage. Father, I just pray that you would clear the mists and the struggles that we have so that we might come to this passage and see its reality, its truth, its joy. Amen. First point, wonder. Will you wonder at the empty tomb and linen? Look with me at the passage that the Vashti read for us. That first Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They took the spices according to the traditions of the time to stop the body smelling because they believed that Jesus was dead. They'd seen him die. They'd seen him finished off by a Roman soldier with a spear up into his ribcage. So out came clotted blood, separated. And verse 50, uh, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb, how his body was laid. They, they, they knew they were going. That's what the, first, the last verse of the, the, the previous chapter says. They, they'd gone home to get the spices and perfumes because, verse 55 of chapter 23, they'd seen where the body was and how his body was laid. They, they'd seen the strips of linen around it. And when they got there, verse 2, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered into the tomb, so it was some, a place that you could, you could go into. It was a tomb cut out of rock. We know that from the other uh, Gospels. While they were wondering about this, <coughs> while they were wondering about this, They'd seen something which challenged their beliefs. Jewish faith at the time believed in the bodily resurrection at the end of time, on the judgment day. They were not expecting a bodily resurrection. They were going there expecting a body, and they didn't find the body. And this got them thinking. The tomb was empty. Have you ever wondered about that? Maybe it's time to start wondering about that. Even if we've been Christians for years, have you thought about the fact that the tomb was empty? It's this one fact that persuaded an atheist lawyer called Frank Morrison, who investigated the resurrection, to try and disprove it. It was this thing that convinced him that the resurrection had happened, and so he entitled his book, The Empty Tomb. Where did the body go? What is your explanation of where the body went? Did the disciples steal it and then lie about it and then die for that lie? Did the Jewish authorities steal it and then fail to produce the body which would have scotched this early sect within Judaism that has caused, had caused them so many problems? Did the Romans steal it? Did tomb robbers <laughs> steal it? <laughs> 
and then somehow leave the linen behind, the very thing which contained the valuable bits of spices. Where did the body go? What happened to it? Have you ever wondered about that? Well, the women were wondering about that. It's what Peter also did in verse 12. Now, that the women report to uh, Peter and the other apostles, uh, and they don't believe what uh, the women say, but Peter investigates for himself, and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Why was the linen, think mummy, why was it still there? Why was the thing that was around Jesus, as other gospels say, the thing that was around Jesus' head taken off and folded up neatly? Why? What is our explanation? Peter is left wondering. John says that he ran there and it was that moment he believed. He knew that Jesus was alive because that's not the kind of thing that any human being would do. To, to coin a phrase, only God can do that. I love the way in which children wonder at the world. I don't know those of you who uh, have young children at the moment. I, re I remember back when uh, that was the case for us. Uh, it makes you look at the world in an entirely different way, doesn't it? It, it? it often takes our attention to the wonderful things of the world that the children see, the, the beauty, uh, the learning of the way that things are. They haven't become blinded by the drudgery of the pragmatic, narrowed by the necessities of life, of earning money, uh, of building a career, whatever it might be. They see things as they really are, because they're not distracted. Will we wonder at these facts of history, eyewitness facts of history? Will we see them as they really are, or be distracted? by pragmatism. Let's be those who return to wonder. Let's not lose that sense of reality that engages fully with what is right in front of our eyes. I mean, wonder at this. Why out of the thousands of th hundreds of thousands of people crucified by the Romans have we only heard of this one? But why is that? Why has this man had a greater impact on human history than any other? He only taught for three years. He never wrote a book. He never led an army. He never had political power. And yet, most historians, I think, would agree, he has had a greater impact on human history than any other. An uneducated carpenter from Nazareth who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why have we even heard of this guy? Are we going to wonder about that? Maybe we've thought about this, and we, and we do believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he was dying on the cross to take the punishment for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can go to paradise, as Jesus says to the thief on the cross in the chapter before. We believe in him. We believe that he was raised bodily from the dead. We worship him. But we say to ourselves, yeah, 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 fine. Um, what are we having for lunch today? Is it lamb? We've become over-familiar. We, have we lost that sense of wonder? Here is a man who was truly dead and was truly bodily raised to life. He's about to eat some 
barbecue to prove it to his disciples at the end of Luke chapter 24, he, he has taken the punishment of our sins. We are, if we believe, part of the new world that is coming that God always planned since before the foundation of the world, a perfect world without sin or sorrow or death or crying. How do we regain that joy that maybe we've lost when we're thinking, well, yeah, I know I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm more interested in what's going to be for lunch? Well, the answer to that question is our second and shorter point, which also answers the objection. If this really happened, why don't the gospel writers spend more time proving this? Why is there not more detail in the eyewitness accounts? I mean, resurrection from the dead, and it's just one chapter? Why? Our second point is this, believe in Jesus, the Son of Man, because of his words. See, belief, faith in Jesus Christ arises from the words of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is no bare fact, though it is that. It happened. It's historically verifiable. But what works faith in Jesus is not just that, it's his words. It's what the angels point to in verse 4, isn't it? Have a look with me at verse 4. While they were wondering about this, they're just thinking, what on earth has gone on? Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, facing, presumably, what they're looking at. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their knees to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. The angels from heaven want the women to believe and remember in what Jesus spoke They remembered his words. He'd always always said this. They weren't expecting it because they were conditioned by the culture of their day, the Jewish culture of their day. Resurrection won't happen until the end of the world. And here it was happening right in front of their eyes. And Jesus had told them, but they couldn't take it in, even though they were with him for three years. But then when they see it, They remember the words of Jesus. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. What what does Jesus mean by Son of Man? I know many of us know this, but let's just revise this. Uh, Keep a finger in uh, Luke chapter 24 and turn back with me to Daniel chapter 7, because Son of Man can just mean human being, but it's clear that Jesus doesn't mean it in that way. So Daniel chapter 7, so you'll find it uh, on page 893, so Daniel chapter 7, it's one of of the most um, common phrases Jesus uses of himself, son of man, and he's referring to the prophecy of Daniel 7, about 600 BC, and we'll pick it up at verse 13. So Daniel sees this uh, vision. It's uh, the judge, the ancient of days coming and the court was seated and the books were opened. 
So Son of Man is the judge coming at the end of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Those are the words that Jesus used at his trial to indicate that he would come at the end of time to judge all people. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the Son of Man, the judge, the one whom all people will worship, i.e. God. Jesus is saying that's what he will be doing. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. He will die, he will be raised he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and of his kingdom, which has no end, as we confess. Why have I gone there? Well, I know many of us are preparing for exams or have done. Other of us are maybe thinking about the next job interview or have had a successful job interview and you're still thinking about that successful job interview. Uh, others of us are still having the exam nightmare. Do you, do you know, do you still have the exam? Oh, I still have an exam nightmare. You, know, you sort of wake, it's also a preaching nightmare sometimes. So the exam nightmare is, I'm there in the exam, and I didn't know it was happening. And I haven't done any revision, and I'm thinking, oh dear. The preaching nightmare is usually, uh, I'm, I'm about to preach, and I have done no preparation, and the Bible is huge. I mean, the Bible is massive, and I can't turn the pages. <sighs> yeah, anyway, I don't know what that says about me. How can we be ready for the exam of our whole life when we stand before the one who will interview us about our innermost thoughts and judge us? Well, the Son of Man knows that the only way we're going to pass, the only way we'll get through the job interview and be welcomed into his new world is by trusting in what he has done on the cross. By trusting in his resurrection from the dead. And so the risen Jesus is supremely desirous. That's an old 17th century word, isn't it? Sorry that that's just popped out. He really wants us to believe in him as he really wanted those first disciples to believe in him. How? Through his words. The words of the whole Bible. Look with me at verse 25. So on the road to Emmaus, what's he, yes, he appears to them, but what does he want to do for them before that moment? He wants to teach them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is a book that's all about Jesus. If we want to believe in Jesus, we need to hear that explanation, don't we, of Jesus? That this book is all about him. It shows who he is and what he's come to do and why the resurrection just had to happen and that his death must happen. And then the same in verse 44, just flip over the page. Oh, I've gone into John's Gospel. Oops, sorry. Uh, verse 44. He said to them, and this was when he was in the upper room and he'd just eaten some fish to prove that he was bodily raised from the dead. Verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, 
and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. See, faith in Jesus is about having our minds open, not just to the fact of the resurrection, but to its meaning. It's meaning defined by the whole Bible, the words of Jesus. This is where faith comes from. It's from the word of God, not by believing a fairy tale, but a collection of books written over 2,000 years, which have no human explanation as to how the Psalms, for example, can predict the death of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah down to the fact that his hands and feet will be nailed, pierced. And that interpreted by the Lord of history. See, there is real joy in having our minds open to things, isn't there? I don't know if you enjoy learning stuff. Our minds open to the subject we're particularly passionate about. And part of the joy of being a Christian is having our minds opened repeatedly to understand who Jesus is, to have refreshed joy in Jesus as every part of the Bible sheds light on who he is and what he came to do. So why is there only one chapter at the end of Luke's Gospel? about the resurrection. Well, it's a bit like saying, why at the end of the World Cup do they have that rather short ceremony with this gold sort of trophy thing? And there, there was you know, Argentina, the, the team gathered, uh, and there was Messi holding it. And, and if you just come in straight on looking at that, you'd think, what is going on? I don't really understand. And it's all very, it's over in about half an hour. Well, why? Because there's been a massive build-up. Some of you would have enjoyed the build-up. Others of you got a bit tired. I mean, people are already probably planning for the next World Cup, where it's going to be and who's going to play and what the favourites are. And, you know, the World Cup and all the matches, did you miss it? Did you, did you not know it was happening? And so when Messi was there with this gold trophy, everybody knew what it meant. It wasn't done in a corner. Everybody in the first century knew what had happened. Some believed, some didn't. But Paul could say when he was put on trial by one of the, the governors in Judea, he could say, well, you, you know what's gone on. This wasn't done in a corner. So will we listen to the words of Jesus, the way in which his spirit opens the eyes of our heart for the first time or refreshes us what is it that refreshes us? The words of Jesus. The, the words of God in the Bible. That's what will nourish our faith, strengthen our faith. So let's be those who keep going, persevering in understanding more and more of God's word. So that we would believe in Jesus. And so believe in what is reality. Because he has risen. The new world is coming. The question is whether we'll be a part of it. Let's just pray as we close. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that your spirit has been at work since the creation of the world to reveal God to countless people and cultures and nations for thousands of years before your coming. 
and for the 2,000 or so years since your coming. Lord, thank you for the billions of people who have trusted in what God has revealed. Please may we be those who wonder at the empty tomb and linen and believe in you because of your word. Amen. We're going to uh, just have a moment of quiet now. The children are being fantastic. But don't worry if there's a little bit of noise. Uh, we can spend some time now just thinking what God might have said to us and what we need to confess to him, where we need to go from here. And then we'll pray those who, who want to, pray the confession, those who um, don't want to, that's fine. Just, just be quiet as, as we do. So let's pray this together. Most merciful Father, our creator and judge, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed. We have not loved you with all our heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We earnestly repent and are truly sorry for all our sins. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us and strengthen us to serve and obey you in lives wholly renewed by your Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.